Okay, here we go. September 27, 2009. Lecture discussion number two. How about that, huh? On Proverbs 6, Matthew 12, Zechariah 11, Revelation 3, and Revelation 19 with perhaps a little Job 5 thrown in. And the reason for that is, is because why? All those guys are connected. Everything has a link to it. Everything works together. For those of you, uh, well, never mind. Let me do something different completely. Again, we'll see how far we get in all of that with Proverbs 6, Matthew 12. If you weren't here last week, here's basically Proverbs 6, the attributes of of Satan, the seven things that God hates that he calls an abomination. (coughs) But, excuse me, before we advance... I would be remiss, actually, derelict with my with respect to my pastor responsibilities, if I neglected to at least mention today that at sundown this evening, which is 6 p.m. Hebrew time, at sundown this evening, we will be in Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It is the sixth of the seven feast days. And you must know all seven feast days. Why must you know? If you don't know, you will not see the predominant foundational pattern in all of Scripture. And you will certainly never completely understand what happened in the crucifixion week. Why Christ did what he did when he did it. We had Rosh Hashanah. On the first day of the seventh month of the religious Hebrew calendar, that was, that's the new year, the Jewish new year, the day of trumpets. The tenth day is Yom Kippur. That's the day of atonement. That's today at 6 p.m. That's when it begins. And then on the 15th of Tishri through the 21st of Tishri, we have booths or tabernacles, or some would call it temples. Your body is not, by the way, a temple. That's a misunderstanding, because when you think your body is a temple, what do you think? You think your body is some kind of building. No, that's not what he meant. He's saying that your body is, in fact, a tabernacle or the tabernacle of Moses. If you want to call yourself a temple, you must know that it is based on the structure that is the temple of Solomon. But that is based on the structure that is the tabernacle or the tent of Moses. When you walked into the tent of Moses, the first thing you saw was what? You had to, you have an altar there. And you work your way through all the way to the Holy of Holies until you are there inside, inside the veil. That is how your body is designed. God designed your body the same way He designed the tent or the tabernacle of Moses, or if you will, the uh, temple of Solomon, or the temple of David, if you prefer that. So. This is the sixth of the seven feast days of the Lord. It falls on the tenth day of the seventh month of the Hebrew religious calendar, as I said. The tenth of Tishri, Leviticus 16. It's the last of the ten days of repentance. So between the Jewish New Year and the day of Yom Kippur, I have ten days of awe, or what are called the awesome days. For those of you who think awesome just originated about 1985, it didn't. It's a Jewish term. It's the days that are awesome from the Jewish New Year to this day that starts tonight at 6 p.m. It is the day of the two goats. And how many times have we done the two goats? Hundreds of times, it seems like. It's the day of the two goats. I have two goats. One goat is for who? 
One goat is for Satan and one goat is for the Lord. The goat for La Adonai, the goat for La Azazel. Or if you want to say Adonai and Azazel and get rid of the law, you're perfectly acceptable because we don't all speak Hebrew anyway and no one understands it. But you have the goat. And when I say that, I mean us Gentiles. I got in a discussion here recently with somebody. I can't remember who I was talking to. Oh, it's Super Day. When Arnold Fruchtenbaum told me, don't even talk to a Jew, please. Don't do it. You're not qualified. You can't speak his language. You don't know what he's thinking. If you have a Jewish person that wants to be saved, that wants to believe that Christ is the Messiah, that he is God, send him to me. Because you, Steve, will mess it up. And that's because we don't really have inbred in us these patterns. We should as much as we can, but we're not the Jewish nation. We are the Gentile church. There are Jews inside of the church, but then there are some Gentiles inside of the Israeli nation. But predominantly, we are different. And that distinction is very important. But it's the day of the two goats. One goat on Yom Kippur was given to Adonai and assigned to him, assigned to the Lord. The other one is assigned to Azazel, Satan. And so there are these two goats, the goat for Adonai, the goat for, the, for God himself. And by the way, he doesn't pronounce his name. It's the ineffable, Y-H-V-H, the unpronounceable name. We're not supposed to pronounce his name. That's why the Jews will always do this, or they will hyphenate. They don't pronounce God's name. It's not pronounceable. The ineffable name. The I am. The goat for YHVH is sacrificed on this day, or was. Now they can't do it, of course. How come? No temple. What happened to the temple? Tore to pieces. By who? The Romans. When? 70 AD. How come? Wanted the gold in there. Simple as that. Took it apart brick by brick. Melted it all down. Took all the money. How come they did that? Jews wouldn't pay their taxes. There's a lesson right there for you. The Roman army has nothing on the Internal Revenue Service. Do not hide your money behind the sheetrock. In the floorboards, behind the sheeting, they will find it. The goat for Adonai is sacrificed before God and, and the sins of Israel are placed on it, pressed on it. I've done this many times. When, you, when we talk about laying on of hands, we're, what's the word I want? We're idiots. Come here, James. Put your coffee down. When you lay on hands and you transfer sin, or the laying on of hands is done like this. That's how it's done. Now, that, they don't do that. You can, you can leave now. Thank you. <laughs> the laying on the hands is this pressing, this intense pressure put on this goat. And then that goat is killed because it has the sins of Israel on it. And the goat for Azazel is released. The goat for Satan is released into the wilderness where Satan is. It has a crimson sash tied around its horns. And before it is released, as it's about to be let go, the sash would turn from crimson red. By the way, when I say crimson, I can barely say crimson. It's that, it's that speech impediment that I had as a kid. My second grade teacher said, poor Steve will never talk. That's the truth. He's got this, slurs his words, can't say R's and S's. We recommend manual labor. Perhaps he could be a shepherd. 
kind of worked out. But the point of it is, is that somehow I overcame it. Um, but when I say to you, crimson, what do you think? You immediately yell back to me, what? Yes, worm. Who said worm? Yay for, yeah, you're right. Oh, a couple of worms. Good for you. You yell back to me, Psalm 22, the crimson worm of Job. I'm sorry, of, of Jonah. Christ had told, said from the cross, <coughs> if you had the position that he quoted all of Psalm 22 from the cross, you know, uh, and I suggest that that's a very strong position to you, but uh, he wanted to make sure that you knew he was the crimson worm that is in Jonah. He is the sash that is tied around this horn. He is the uh, uh, Rahab's red thread, this blood thread that goes all through Scripture. He is the blood. Okay, Before its release, this sash would turn from red to white, signifying that the sins that were pressed upon the first goat are forgiven. So what's on the second goat? As you know, if you've been here, my position is there's nothing on the second goat. That's the point. And it's released in front of Satan, and it's a Matthew 4, Genesis 15 solution to sin. Exhibition to the angelic host that is lost in the wilderness. Amanda, could you turn off Lindsay's heater for me, please? It's by your piano. You turned it on, didn't you? The one by you and where you're wearing your coat, your parka while you're playing the piano? Thank you, Lynn. It's really not that cold in here, is it? Okay, everybody, push up position. Ready? <laughs> Down. Up. I, I have a joke. People say, do you exercise? And, and I do. I, as some of you know, I, I lift a lot of weights. And, and they ask me, well, you do anything aerobically? And I say, yeah, I do jacks. I do jacks. And people say, well, you mean jumping jacks. No, that would require what? Jumping. No, I don't do that. This is all I'm going to do now. And that's, that's pretty darn impressive. That foot moved. But no, I don't do jumping jacks, squat thrusts. When, I, I don't do any of that stuff anymore. But I can do push-ups. Okay. The sash turns from red to white, signifying the sins of Israel being forgiven and the acceptance of the death of the first goat by Adonai. It's atonement. It's life of the goat for the life of Israel. It is life for life. It's the day the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies. What's he got tied around his leg? A rope. How come? Just in case he has a problem in there. And he dies because he's in the presence of the Shekinah glory, the flame, the bright light, the primable. When I say primable, I know i got a lot of visitors here today. Next week, I don't mean prime evil like some silly movie. It's primable. It means first, foremost. The prime light is inside the tabernacle or the temple. It's inside you, by the way. Where is the Holy Spirit, the Shekinah glory, if you are saved? Where is it in your body? Because he says your body is exactly like the tabernacle of Moses. So where is it? You have to figure that out, by the way. There's many who think they know. You should know. If you say the heart, then you have a euphemism. So let's rule that out. We'll also rule out your foot. So now work from there. 
But atonement is life for life. The life of the goat for the life of the nation. The whole the high priest goes in there. He has a rope tied around his leg because if he dies in there, if he does performs badly, he doesn't do what he's supposed to do and he is taken by God, then the only way you get him out of there is what? Drag him out by the rope. It's the only day the high priest could go through the veil There's your hint, by the way, where those of you who are medical students, does the body have a veil? It's done. It's the only day the high priest could go through the veil and get into the presence of the Shekinah glory, which was above the mercy seat. And he would see the glory of God face to face. And face to face, by the way, became synonymous with Yom Kippur. Let me read this to you. First uh, Corinthians. This is when, in other words, when I say synonymous, I mean interchangeable. You will say for Yom Kippur, you will say this is face to face day. First Corinthians thirteen. If you want to follow along, but you know I am a trained professional and I do have a head start. Now I'll tell you the verse so that I always win. Verse nine. Okay. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but that but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Now, here's the Yom Kippur reference. For now we see in a mirror darkly or a mirror dimly. You might have darkly. If you have darkly, yours is more correct because he is quoting a Jewish commentary there. That is word for word coming out of a Jewish commentary. You have the Midrash, the Gamil, and the uh, Talmud. I believe that's from the Midrash. I'm not sure. But now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. For now, now I know in part, but then I shall know, and I'm sorry, but then I shall know just as I also am known. Face to face, mirror darkly. Face to face began to become synonymous, interchangeable, an idiom with Yom Kippur. Life for life, face face to face, that's the essence of this day to the Jew. It is the most solemn of all the seven feasts days. I have seven feast days. It is the most solemn of all of those. So that means what? Makes us ask the obvious question. See, we know, or we should know, those seven feast days. We should know Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, weeks, not Pentecost. Pentecost is a Jewish term that refers to 50. We should call it weeks because there are seven weeks plus one. It's the Omer. It's the counting from Mount Sinai to the Red Sea or the Red Sea to Mount Sinai. It's the period of time it took the Jews to get across the Red Sea and get to Mount Sinai. Seven sevens plus one, the Omer 50. That's where the Penta comes from. But you shouldn't make that mistake because it's misleading. We have a denomination that calls themselves Pentecostals. I always ask them, why do you do that? Well, they're focusing on Acts 2, which is sad. They should focus on Mount Sinai and the Red Sea. That's another lecture. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, weeks, trumpets, atonement, tabernacles. 
They form a pattern. Things, events of great significance occur on these days. God, as you know, Jesus Christ, God, what is that? That's interchangeable. Jesus Christ is God and and man. God, Jesus Christ, chose three o'clock in the afternoon between the two eaves. That's twelve and six. Okay? Right down the middle is three. He chose three o'clock in the afternoon on Passover. He picked a feast day. On pa- Why did he pick a feast day? He's trying to teach you something about his pattern. Who is he? He's God. He's in total control of his own crucifixion. Don't watch the movies. At three o'clock, teach you otherwise, he says it is finished. It's the exact same thing as the high priest says when he cuts the lamb's throat. Three o'clock. Simultaneously, the high priest on Passover is saying that, and Christ is saying that. Who do you think drowned out whom? So, Jesus Christ, God, chose chose three o'clock on Passover to give up his spirit. Israel crossed the Red Sea on the feast day of first fruits. Israel reached Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, the wedding ceremony, the wedding bow exchanges on weeks, or Shavuot, on the feast day of weeks. Christ rose on first fruits, was entombed on unleavened bread, as everyone knows, or you should know that. If you don't know the pattern of the feast days, Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits with regard to the crucifixion, you deserve a beating. You have to know that. The New Testament church was established. The bride of Christ betrothed on the feast day of weeks. Just like Mount Sinai, where Israel was married, exchanged vows. It's a wedding ceremony. That's why I bring it up all the time. I do weddings. drives people crazy. They want me to say nice things about the little bride and groom, whom I hardly know, most of them, unless they're my family, and then I don't pretend to know. I don't do any little cutesy pie stuff. Oh, isn't Betty sweet looking? And she's known Billy for, well, okay, a couple of hours now. And... um, And I don't know either one of them, and they're not paying me. Bummer. Hopefully I can get some buffet. I don't do that. I tell you what the Hebrew betrothal ceremony is, what Adam and Eve is, what happened at Mount Sinai. That was a wedding. That was a bride. Israel was a bride being escorted by two people. Who escorted her? The two witnesses. Moses and Aaron escorted her up there. And the entire nation of Israel, Exodus 19, says, we will or I do. We still follow that pattern in our marriages today. And they did that on the feast day of weeks. Christ rose on first fruits, as I said, and tombed on unleavened bread. The New New Testament church also becomes betrothed on weeks, just like Israel did. Most theologians conclude, by the way, that Noah's ark came to rest on the Mount Ararat on what day? First fruits. Adam, they believe, was born on what day? Trumpets. By the way, that probably should help you. If the first Adam was born on trumpets, which is essentially in September, when was the second or the last Adam born? What do you think? Give it a guess. You know, it's a pattern. Come on. Yeah, same day. So why do we exchange gifts at Christmas? It's a Roman Babylonian holiday. That's why we do it. It has absolutely nothing to do with the feast day. If you have Christ being born on a day that isn't a feast day, you is in for a long, hard 
discussion with one person who knows better. Your position will be drop-kicked around the room and you'll chase after it, but you certainly can't defend it. Sorry. Not really. That's a fake sorry. Anyway, the rapture, we all talk about the rapture. The, that uh, Trumpets, by the way, uh, the word means awakening blast. So there's an awakening blast that occurs, and that's when they think, uh, believe the Jews believe that Adam was born, and that's when we believe that Christ was born. The rapture, we believe, another awakening blast. Will that occur on trumpets? Most think so. That's First Thessalonians 4. Many, many great scholars, students of Scripture have devoted their lives to this feast day pattern. They have just studied it and li- every day, never missed a day. They list everything that occurred on these days. Everything Christ said on these days. When you read the Gospels, you have to know all the time, did he say this on a feast day? Did he do this on a feast day? There are lists. Men and women have spent their lives, as I said. Everything Christ would say on these days, everything that he would do on these days, they have tried to figure out what he's saying and doing and why. So the obvious question, Yom Kippur is what? The most solemn of all of these feast days, which makes it what? The most solemn of all days of the year, tonight, six o'clock. And the next obvious question is, why? Why is this the most solemn day in Scripture? Does the church, the contemporary church, do we even talk about this? Ever heard this sermon before? Hmm? What does he do? What does Christ do on Yom Kippur, the most solemn of all days? That's the obvious question. What does he say on this day? He's God, remember? And the next obvious question, where or what in Genesis 1 through 3 do we assign to Yom Kippur? You see, you have to figure out. He, he followed this pattern before he revealed the pattern, didn't he? So what happened in Genesis 1 through 3 on Yom Kippur? What happened in Genesis 1 through 3? Adam and Eve, right? And remember, what does Yom Kippur stand for? It's the life for life. It's the face to face. See, we should expect the pattern to be there. The creation of Adam and Eve, the fall and the deception of Eve, the fall of Adam. Notice the difference. What's the difference? One deceived, one not. Adam not deceived, fell not deceived. So I have the creation of Adam, I have the creation of Eve. Did either one of those occur on Yom Kippur? I've said that Adam was born on the Great Awakening. Eve falls and is deceived on what day? Yom Kippur? The fall of Adam on what day? The sacrifice of the two innocent animals is covering of blood for both Adam and Eve, as well as the removal of the fig tree. What day? The driving out of Adam and Eve from The Garden of Eden, the placing of the cherubim and the Shekinah glory flaming sword. What day? Now, the next most obvious question. This is my favorite. This kind of fits in today's sermon because I haven't started the sermon yet. Have you noticed? 
This is kind of a rabbit trail. Upon which feast day, if any, did Satan fall? Hmm. How about the one-third angelic host? Genesis 6, noatic flood occurs on what feast day? Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, weeks, great awakening, Yom Kippur, tabernacles. Anyway, 6 p.m. tonight is Yom Kippur, the most solemn of all days. So feel free to wonder about Scripture, searching for your Yom Kippur references these clues that teach you why things happen. See, it's the hardest thing for me to get to anyone to do. Um, and I was trained a little bit, but not enough. You know what trained me more than anything else was coaching basketball. I had to take my point guards and say, come down the floor and do everything but what? Everything but what? Don't look at the guy defending you. Not eye to eye. Look at him periphery. See him off to the see a shadow. Try to anticipate him, but don't look at him and don't look at the ball. What are you supposed to do? Look into the center of the key. See if somebody's cutting. Got to see that. You've got to look past what's in front of you. You've got to see what's behind that. When you watch TV, train yourself. Stop looking at the guy doing the sales pitch. Look at the people moving behind them. When you're, when you just see a crowd, don't just focus on the one central figure. Try to look around, try to notice things. That's how they train who specifically. It's the Secret Service, yeah. Don't, don't look at the obvious. Try to find the, 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 what's behind. Look for the why. Why did Christ, God Himself, say this on this feast day? What's He trying to do? What's His plan here? How does it fit together? Okay, start the sermon. Plenty of time left, a good, good 90 minutes. Four people just left. For those of you who missed last Sunday, and there was a lot of you missing, there's still a whole bunch of you missing, um, I utilized a nursing ethics scenario that was intended to provoke the nursing student. I stole it. Okay, it was given to me by somebody who stole it, which makes me completely innocent. But I utilized this nursing ethics scenario test or exam or whatever it was. It was some kind of assignment. And it was intended to provoke the, the nursing students to make decisions about life and death based on a series of false premises. And then me, as soon as I see a false premise, I, of course, attach it to the false premise, which is Matthew 4, which is the lie of Satan, right? Which is Genesis 15. So... The most obvious of these said false premises that was in that scenario was that we can somehow save ourselves and save others. That's what it tried to get you to do. You were supposed to kill four people or save four people. I can't remember. Kill five. Somebody had to kill the puppy. I remember there was a couple of you that wanted to do that. But it's all a false premise B, because the, the premise is, is that we can save ourselves and we can save others. Can we save ourselves? Can you save yourself? No. That's why I said as soon as you killed five people or four people, then a shark ate everybody. And now you're in standing in front of the great throne being what? Yes. The, the answer to that is stupid. Yeah. And you wouldn't want that. 
But you cannot save yourself and you cannot save others. Anything that gives you the impression that you can is a flawed premise. Now, you may think, oh, wait a minute, I can save somebody's life. Can you? We have to define what? Life. What can you do? I, I, and I don't want to pick on the faith healers who drive really nice cars because I don't. Uh, but uh, they have a false premise most of the time. They claim they're going to heal you. Are they going to heal you? Let's define heal. What's the best you're going to do? You're going to get time, maybe. You're going to get time. Then what? And I. You're not truly healed unless God heals you, right? Okay. But we cannot save ourselves and we cannot save others. And the other false premise was is that somehow we are essential, irreplaceable, in the sense that God cannot save without our involvement. In other words, uh, we're on a boat and we've got to get rid of five people. Who are the essential people? Who are the essential people? But think about the, the premise. Who's the essential people? Who's the essential? We're going to rank everybody in this room. Who ranks number one? Yeah, that's a false premise. See, that's a trick. Don't fall for that. Look behind that if you can, right? There are no irreplaceable, no essential in the sense that God cannot save without us. I hear it all the time, by the way. It's a common theme when these uh, religious organizations, mostly missionaries, come to see me. Why do they come to see me? Yeah, they want to speak in front of you. Why do they want to speak in front of you? Because they like you? No. What do they think you have that... That's right, we can get your money. No one will be saved in Botswana unless Fred gets more money from you. Fred is what? He's essential. God needs him. Oh. Right about there, we all jump up, grab, and take him off the stage, right? God does not need Fred. God will save. He doesn't need anybody. None of us are essential to God. Figure that out. Most of the time we do, okay, all of the time we do what? We get in the way. We're certainly not essential to God. Come on, think about it. Uh, doctrinally, God needs Fred is dribble blather. My apologies to any Fred who may be here this morning. I don't think I've ever had a Fred come to church. Do I have one today? Okay, I successfully used Fred as an example one more Sunday. The case study scenario also proposed by implication is very subtle undertone from last week again that there is no great white throne of judgment. There is no accounting. There is no atonement. Very subtle undertone. It would tell us that we possess control, that there exists answers and, or I'm sorry, there exists questions and enigmas that are unanswerable, that are unsolvable. That was the whole premise of this little case scenario, that whatever decision that you made, you were going to make what? A bad one. There was no good solution. There was nothing that could be solved. You see, for those that came last week, the case study implied that we, that humanity, must make death decisions for some, uh, must 
promote someone else's life over another's based on a devised humanity value system. And they, we must do this for what reason? We must do these things for the good of humanity. I have to kill you in order to save you. She votes for me. She doesn't. Okay, I'll uh, switch the vote. I have to kill you in order to save you. That's a human-based value system promoting one life over another for the good of who? Probably for the good of me. That's right. But certainly there is no, let me write, for the good. What a sucker that is. When you see good, what should you do? Somebody tells you that they're doing something. You know, that's a great joke. I'm from the government and I'm here to do something good for you. You should slam the door. You should know better, right? Mankind defining good is Isaiah 5.20 classic. Isaiah 5.20 is when you look at good and you call it evil. When you look at evil, you call it good. That's classic Isaiah 5.20 moment there. For the good of humanity. Do we even know what the good of humanity is? See, that's the subtle undertone. So obviously that took us to Proverbs 6 where we found the seven things that God hates that he calls an abomination, where we also found the Antichrist. And we discovered that these are not just seven things that are arbitrary. They are the attributes of Satan himself. They are part of the premise of Satan. That's how we got from the scenario to Proverbs 6. Proverbs uh, 6 tells you that Satan has a lie. Just as Matthew 4 does. And that case study presented a similar rock lift type thing that we would find in the satanic lives. And God declares these attributes, by the way, adultery. And he calls adultery an abomination. You can exchange the two words as you wish. If you want to say adultery, you can say abomination. If you want to say abomination, you can say adultery. The great abomination, the great adultery that leads to desolations, Daniel 9, is when the Antichrist goes in to the tabernacle of which you are um, a pattern of. You are made in that pattern. God likes patterns. He goes into the new temple. How come we got to have a new temple, by the way? Because the Romans took out the last one. We have a platform. We have a foundation for a temple. What's on it? A Muslim mosque, the Dome of the Rock. It's in the way. The Bible says there's going to be the new temple built there because the Antichrist has got to go inside of it. And he's going to go into the Holy of Holies and declare himself to be who? The Shekinah glory. That's right. And that is the ultimate desolation adultery. So these things that God hates in Proverbs 6, the proud look, the lying tongue, the shedding of innocent blood, the wicked plans, the running to evil, the false testimony and sowing discord. Those things that God calls adultery because those are characteristics of the Antichrist when he makes the entire world worship him as God. And he is what? He is a human being that is created ultimately, right? And all of that, by the way, followed in, in Proverbs 6, poverty. 
Poverty caused by accepting responsibility for another person's debt. And poverty caused by refusing to go out and gather wisdom. Failing to put any effort into gaining or acquiring wisdom. Being happy with being dumb. I have a friend, a very good friend, worked for me, great guy. He said, I want to be the last guy into heaven, and I want the door to close behind me, and I want to be the dumbest person there. Wow. That's a heck of a risk. I don't want to learn the Bible. I don't want to know the Bible. I want to go through my life being dumb. I don't want any wisdom. Good luck with that. But I want you to note the order of Proverbs 6. Poverty that is caused by taking on someone else's debt. Poverty that is caused by a... a Refusal to learn wisdom. And then that is followed by the Antichrist and then Satan. Proverbs 6 says that if you are one of these poor people, in other words, if you are in somebody, if you've assigned, if, you're, if you've gotten responsibility for someone else's debt, debt, let me put that on there for you. If you have somebody else's debt on you, And that's why you're poor. Do anything, struggle, beg, claw, do anything you can to get out of that debt because that poverty leads to Antichrist, Satan. Okay, so there's your order, Proverbs 6. And what is this, this order? And some of you have put it together already. You have figured out why the case study scenario and the lie of Satan all fits together, and why the poverty of cosine debt and the lack of wisdom will get you to Antichrist and the attributes of Satan, the, the, the attributes of the lie of Satan. Notice that it's a kind of a Satan sandwich. The false premise and the attributes. It's kind of an Oreo cookie. It's bookends. Satan on each end of this. But for those who prefer more information, who require more evidence, because you have no idea what I'm talking about, pretty much sums up, okay, everybody in the congregation. I'm not offended by that. Let's go to Matthew 12:22, and then hopefully you'll begin to see how poverty, Proverbs 6, leads to the Antichrist leads to the attributes of Satan. Which means that if you don't have wisdom and you have assigned debt to you from somebody else, then you're going to get what? You're going to be fooled. By what? False premise, which is the lie of Satan. You're a sucker. That's how it begins to fit together. Don't be a sucker. Have one of these kind of minds, like I said, that looks past and sees what's going on. Look for the hidden microphone. Look for the guys in the crowd who are gathering information and relaying it to the guy on stage. Figure out that the people that jump out of the wheelchairs are what? Actors. Figure that stuff out. Don't fall for Fred is essential. God can't save anybody in Zambia.
Matthew 12. Here we go. Let's read it together. When we're reading it, let's ask these some very important questions. First question is, what does this have to do with Judas and the anointing oil? Because that's what we're doing. What does this have? That's John 12, Mark 14, Matthew 26. That, of course, Judas and the anointing oil takes us to Zechariah 11 and Revelation 3. So, just for those of you who like to read ahead and figure that stuff out on your own, there you go. Here's Matthew 12, start at verse 22. Then one was brought to him. One was brought to Christ. What's the obvious question before we even start? We can't even go past that sentence. Then one was brought to him. What's the question? Who brought him? Where did they find this guy? Then one was, and why did they bring him? Yeah, well, we'll get to that in a second. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed. What's the obvious question? How did he get demon-possessed? He's in trouble, isn't he? Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him. They brought a blind, mute guy. Where did they find him? Well, they got a whole shed full of them. Okay, there's Christ. Let's go bring a blind, mute guy to him. Who's in charge of blind, mute, demon-possessed guys? So well, that would be you. So the blind and mute man both spoke and saw, and all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the Messiah? Son of David means Messiah. How come they didn't say, this is the Messiah? Why did they ask a question? I mean, if I, if I, by the way, I know a little bit about this, so I, and you will too when we're done here today, but if Christ would heal the deaf mute, if somebody shows, if I was there, and I saw somebody heal a demon-possessed deaf mute guy who then spoke and saw, I would say, that's the Messiah. They didn't. They asked a question. Could it be? Now, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Belial. Proverbs 6, Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said, Duh. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Every city or house divided against itself will not stand. By the way, who's talking here? God is talking. So how complex is this? Do you think you understand it? Be careful. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. Since I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. What's the obvious question? Which kingdom? How many kingdoms we got? Five of them. Which kingdom is he talking about? It's the messianic kingdom, by the way, not the universal kingdom. As an example. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Who's the strong man? Who's coming in to plunder? Is the guy coming in to plunder the strong? Is the strong man a good guy or a bad guy? Let's start there. Strong man is who? Satan. What's Satan got? Who's plundering? 
And then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Okay, repeating something I've said quite a few times when we found ourselves in Matthew 12. This is the rejection of the Messiahship of Christ, which is called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. None of you can blaspheme the Holy Spirit. You cannot commit the unpardonable sin. The only that can do that is the nation of Israel. It requires that God be physically present before the nation and be rejected on the basis that it's not really God, that he's Satan instead. And that happened, and that is the unpardonable sin. You cannot commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You can be dumb, and you can sin, and you can do all kinds of horrible things, but they are not unpardonable. They can be forgiven. This is a national sin, not an individual sin, okay? Casting out a demon from a blind mute could only be done by the Messiah. No one can cast out a demon from a blind mute unless he is God. What's the obvious question? Why? Obviously, they knew it because that's why they brought the blind, mute, demon-possessed guy to Christ, because that is a messianic test. And everyone in Israel knows that even today. I could find any Jew and say, hey, i got a blind, mute, demon-possessed guy. He'd go, well, let's find the Messiah. Only the Messiah can do this. It is a specific sign taught as such. Every Jew knows it. How many Gentiles? Raise your hand if you knew this before now. Okay, how long have you come to this church? You don't count. How come the church doesn't teach this? Every Jew knows it. How come we don't know it? It's a specific sign taught as such that only the Messiah, the son of David, could do this. Because you had the... the Jewish exorcists could cast out demons, but they couldn't do it from mutes, and they couldn't do it from blind mutes. Why? Yes, yes, O oh daughter. you got to know the name. And you can't know the name if you can't talk, unless you're who, duh, God. So only God can cast out a demon from a blind mute. And everyone knew it. The demon-possessed blind mute characteristic was absolutely brought to him to see if he was indeed the anointed Messiah. Why blind is a very good question. Let's see if that's in here. Why, there it is. Soon, my little grasshopper. You don't trust me as much as you used to when you first came, do you? Well, really? Ah. Okay. Again, where did they find this guy? And I want to know. I want to know as soon as that demon comes out of him and he can do what now? He can see. That's really cool. And what else can he do? He can talk. So I want to know something. What's he say? This is a pretty interesting man. Think about it. He is demon possessed and he can't see and he can't talk. Now he can. What's he going to say? What's he know? He knows stuff, doesn't he? I want to hear what he has to say. I have a feeling you can't shut him up. And that's the reason for the crowd's amazement. And that's the reason the Pharisees immediately said, this is Satan, because that's a classic Isaiah 520, isn't it? They're calling God who is good. They're calling him evil, aren't they? That's a 520 Isaiah. 
Why were the people unwilling to depart from the Pharisees' leadership? Because that's what they did. They said, could this be the Son of God? Who'd they ask that question to? To the Pharisees. They went to, he just cast out a demon from a blind mute. Is that the Son of God or what? And the Pharisees said, oh, no, that's not the Son of God, that's Satan. How come they went to the Pharisees in the first place? They were unwilling to separate themselves away from the religious leaders, weren't they? That's a big problem. The Pharisees had a couple of options here. What was option one? Yep, that's the Son of God. That is the Anointed One. That's the Messiah. That is the I Am. That is the YHVH. That is the Lord God Almighty of creation. No, that's not. Which one did they pick? No, that's not. And who do you think had the blind, mute, demon-possessed guy? The Pharisees had him. They knew this was a blind, mute, demon-possessed guy, and they knew only God could do this. And then they said, no, I ain't God. Sorry. And they ask him, they say to him, this is the reason they have this Beelzebub response. And again, Jesus knew their thoughts. Duh, he's God. He knows everybody's thoughts. This is the Elijah typology coming now to the forefront. And his counter to the Pharisees' accusation that he is, in fact, Satan, was essentially, Satan does not release anybody ever. Those in Satan's grasp, have to be removed by force. He never lets go of them. Okay? The fact that the demon-possessed man was blind and wretched and miserable and poor and naked, what's that? Revelation 3.17, as well as unable to speak, would be expected. He is in the control of the person with these seven attributes. So he is blind and he is wretched and he is miserable, both both literally and physically. He is poor and he is naked and he is mute. And we would expect that for somebody who has fallen for the lie of Satan. That is why I don't want you to fall for the lie of Satan. Let me repeat it. If you have fallen for the premise of Satan and you need to know what the premise of Satan is, and you can do that by what? Getting the CD from a couple of weeks ago, which is really cheap. It's only a couple of thousand dollars. Okay, it's free. See, Jane. Raise your hand. Jane. She doesn't want to give it to you. There's Jane. See, Jane. Get the CD. It will tell you what the premise of Satan is. Because I don't want you to be blind and wretched and miserable and poor and naked and not know it. I don't want you to be blind, wretched, miserable, poor, and naked, which is a long way of saying what? Stupid. Yes, I don't want you to be that. I want you to understand the premise of Satan. I want you to understand what happens to you if you can't figure it out. Only Jesus Christ, God himself in the flesh, can free somebody who is in the condition of this blind, new, demon-possessed guy. And Satan has this one unable to find, unable to gather, unable to testify. Christ must take... Take this man by force, because he tells you he does. How can I get him? I've got to go in and bind Satan, and then I take his stuff. What's his stuff? What's Satan have? There's a whole bunch of what? People. And they all have the same characteristic. What is it? 
They have no wisdom. Yeah, they're blind and wretched and miserable and poor and naked. Christ must take this man by force. And now this man has something to say. This man can see. This man can testify. Again, what did he say? This is a sign, a wonder that Satan will not counterfeit. Why won't he? Christ said he won't. Who's Christ again? God, here's your skittle. Christ says Satan won't counterfeit it. Is he right? Yes, he is. Here's your skittle. This is a sign, a wonder, that Satan will not counterfeit. Obvious question. Why won't he counterfeit it? Why is this something that only Christ will do? Why is this something that only Christ can do? Satan can't do it. Satan can't what? We're back to the scenario, aren't we? See how I did it? Oh, wow. Satan can't what? This guy's in the boat, isn't he? Satan can't what? Can't what? Can't save him. It's not that Satan wouldn't save him. He wouldn't. He won't. He doesn't. But he can't either. The freeing of the blind mute from demon possession is in the purview, is in the authority of Jesus Christ alone. Note that God asks three questions. How then will Satan's kingdom stand? That's a rhetorical question. It implies what? Ain't going to stand. By whom do the Jewish exorcists cast out demons? How can you enter Satan's house? Obviously, the freeing of the demon-possessed results in the destruction of Satan's kingdom. A kingdom that's built on what? On a lie. So if I destroy the lie, I destroy the kingdom of Satan. That's where in Scripture, Matthew 4, 1 through 11, the destruction of the lie of Satan. You may think it is the temptation of Christ because you've watched too many movies. It has nothing to do with the temptation. Christ cannot be tempted. He's God. It's the testing of Christ to reveal that he's God, and it is the destruction of the lie of Satan upon which his kingdom is built. That lie says essentially this, that there is no solution to sin because there is no solution to God's omniscience and our free will. That there is no solution to the origin of evil because of God's omniscience. And that that premise, that lie, is destroyed in Matthew 4. By saving, by freeing mankind from the bondage of sin, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, is destroying the lie of Satan and ending the false premise. Satan would do nothing that would expose his lie, plus Satan can do nothing to save anyone, including himself. He cannot save himself. You and I cannot save ourselves. How do we get saved then? Satan cannot bind himself. Only God binds sin. Only God solves sin. Only God saves from sin. Only God reaches down and grabs sinners. Only God comes down in the flesh in the midst of sinners. And Jesus Christ enters into the wilderness. Satan's kingdom, which is where? Yeah, Spinard, you're right. No, it's all of the world. 
Jesus Christ comes down into the wilderness, Satan's kingdom. That's Yom Kippur. That is the goat, isn't it? Going into the wilderness in front of Azazel at 6 o'clock today. Jesus Christ enters into the wilderness, Satan's kingdom, takes him by force, casts him, bounds him into the abyss, Revelation 22 through 3, then to the lake of fire, Revelation 20, verse 10. God descends, comes as the God-man, the hypostatic union, comes to the earth, Satan's kingdom, and he does what? He plunders it. What is the treasure that Satan has? Us, you, me, them. Christ comes to get it, and he does it by destroying the lie that the kingdom is based upon. First, the lie's got to be exposed. First, there has to be uh, an announcement, a proclamation that there is a solution to sin. There is a solution to the unsolvable, the unanswerable. There is an answer. There is a solving. The, the answer reveals the goodness of God and the omniscience of God is not in conflict with our free will and that God can solve sin and he is not the author of sin and he does solve sin. And how he did it was how he came down to earth as a human being with God himself inside, if you will. We have infinite God and perfect humanity combined. And as soon as that happens... The plundering begins, the gathering. And now here's the rest of it. We'll finish it next week because it's time we've exceeded the drool limit. Matthew 12, 35 through 37. Look, I know this is hard to put together. I don't really... uh, I don't really expect that uh, everybody does put it together. I learned a long time ago that it takes a lot of time, but I want you to put it together. I want you to start putting it together. I want to put it out in front of you so that you know it exists. That's first. And then you work your way through it. Let's read Matthew 12, 35 through 37. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word, when I say idle, you say lazy, and we all say Proverbs 6. Every idle word men may speak, they will give account for it in the day of judgment, accounting, atonement. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Every idle word connects to Proverbs 6. We connect Proverbs 6 with the word idle to Zechariah 11. We connect Zechariah 11 to who? Judas. And now you learn the mystery of the man of iniquity, one of the great mysteries in all of Scripture. And next week we shall... Try to get those mysteries lined up and put on the table. And someday, we'll even put it all together for you. Let's rise and be dismissed.